0: Last time we were together, I began preaching through this little passage in John 15 with a provocative quote from uh, author Francis Chan, which said, "Our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter." Now, I, I wonder, have you had a chance to think about that statement more deeply? In light of what I feel is one of the most important chapters in the New Testament, chapter 15 of John's Gospel, did what we began to unpack last week cause you to do a bit of soul searching at all about where your life fits into that statement of chance? Because last time I unashamedly declared that Jesus doesn't plan failure for his disciples, only fruitfulness. And that flourishing fruitfulness is really the concern of Christ. It is his greatest desire and personal expectation for us. But according to Jesus' words in John 15, a fruitful relationship with Christ depends upon a few critical things. And so I want to refresh our minds this morning and immerse ourselves in what Christ teaches in this text Again, and so I have asked Dan Buck if he would read the passage, John 15, verses 1 to 8, for us to refresh our memories.
1: I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them, and they cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples.
0: So last week, the first thing that we unpacked, and we spent a lot of time on this, was the fact that in this text, Jesus says, flourishing fruitfulness requires constant cultivation by God. We see that in the first three verses, that continuing fruitfulness comes only through an attachment to the true vine, Jesus Christ, and his father is the vine dresser let look at that again. I am the true vine, he says, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So continuing fruitfulness then comes only through attachment to this true vine, Jesus Christ. God's the father, the father is the vine dresser. And his work consists of these two things, according to the verses we just read. Cutting and pruning. Not great prospects when you think about it. First of all, in verse 2, he says he cuts off the false followers, and then he says he cultivates the true ones. He purges and he prunes. And ultimately, he does this through his word. Verse 3 says, you are already clean, literally, pruned like a branch because of the word which I have spoken to you okay so fruitfulness for Christ Jesus says requires constant cultivation by God keep yourself under the pruning process of the word because it cleanses and it purifies and it nourishes us and so gathering together as a church is one way that that happens and I kinda left off with that last week with the charge that the Bible says, don't forsake the gathering together. Put yourself under the cleansing power of the word. Isaiah chapter 55 and verses 10 and 11, some of my favorite verses in this scripture concerning the word of God, say this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Well this is my greatest joy on Sunday mornings when I get up and it's something that I pray every Sunday morning before I enter this pulpit is Lord when I walk down from this pulpit let me walk down in humility and in confidence knowing that and releasing whatever I just said like a helium balloon let it go because God has promised that his word will not return empty or void without accomplishing the work and the purposes for which he sent it forth. I don't have to worry about what God's going to do with that word. It's God's purpose to do with it what he wants to. The second thing we want to find out here we see in John 15 is that flourishing fruitfulness here demands a constant connection to Christ. And that's in verses four to six. Watch as I read here. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Okay, let's just stop right there for a moment. First thing I want to say about this is that what Jesus is implying, I believe, is that you need to maintain the principle of priority. Okay? The principle of priority. And you find the principle of priority in the first part of verse 4 and in the first part of verse 5. Let me read it to you in conjunction with each other like that. Verse 4, the first part Abide in me and I in you. Now, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Okay? That's what I call the principle of priority. Abide in me and I in you. Jesus used the word ten times in six verses. That word abide. What does it mean to abide? Well, Greek lexicons say that it carries the idea of uh, remaining, to stay, to continue in, to dwell, to sojourn, to rest in, to last, to endure, to continue unchanged, to be in close, intimate communion with. It means all of those things. No one word really fits it completely. Completely. Point's clear. Christ not only wants to be in us, but he wants us to be in him. Amen? Amen. Steeped in him. Okay? Steeped is the best word that I could find to describe what Jesus is really getting at when he uses the term abide. It means to be saturated with or to be subject thoroughly to a strong and pervading influence Christ is saying actually be steeped in me okay are you steeped in Christ how many tea drinkers do we have in this congregation I'm a coffee drinker. I don't drink tea, but we've got a lot of tea drinkers. You'll understand this metaphor really well. Years ago, my wife and I and a few others from this church had the privilege of worshiping with Dr. Tony Evans at a large conference in Boston. In one of his talks that he gave, he shared an analogy that I think fits this text perfectly. Dr. Evans described a person's relationship to Christ in tea drinkers' terminology. If you are a hot tea drinker, you know there are two ways to prepare your tea, and most tea drinkers fall into one of two categories. You see where you fit in here. Some people are dippers, right? They take their tea bag and they go up and down and up and down and up and down. You know, if you're a dipper, you got to do a lot of work. First of all, you got to go up and down, and then you got to pick up a spoon, and then you got to put the bag in the spoon, and then you gotta, then you got to wrap that string around that bag, and you pull it real tight, and then take your middle finger or your thumb or some finger and push it down until you get all the stuff out of it. Am I right? How many dippers do we have in the congregation? Dr. Evans then explained that he's not a dipper he's an abider that's the other category he said i simply drop my tea bag in the water and i let it remain (laughs) and the water flows through the bag and the bag flows through the water and they kind of flow through each other sounds kind of new agey doesn't it (laughs) And right before my eyes, he says, I watched the transformation occur. You're either a dipper or you're an abider. Let me ask you a question about your spiritual life with Christ and your relationship with him. Are you a dipper or an abider? As it relates to bearing fruit for God, dippers have to make it happen. Abide or simply watch it happen. Dr. Evans related that he was drinking tea with a man one day and in his words, he was, he was dipping and I was abiding. He looked at me and he said, I can't do that. And I said, why not? And he said, because my tea will get too strong. That's what happens when you abide. It just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And you become fruitful and more fruitful and much more fruitful, as the text says. Note the pattern Jesus unveils for those intimately connected to Christ through abiding. Verse 2, he bears fruit. Again in verse 2, he bears more fruit. In verses 5 and in verse 8, he bears much fruit. And then in verse 14, he bears fruit that remains that's the progress so be an abider don't just be a dipper because being abider that's the only way you're going to be truly truly fruitful that's the priority abide in Christ and he will abide in you amen there is no other way to produce much fruit and fruit that remains years ago my wife and I are a good friend, Laura, that lived across the street in the house that Barrington Lane lives in now, decided to share a garden. And in that garden, there were huge, huge vines. In fact, they were overtaking the driveway. And uh, in fact, and, and there was a huge pumpkin growing on one of those vines in that yard. And that thing got bigger every single day. Every day. And at the time, I remember thinking, what will happen if I take that pumpkin off the vine?" well you know the answer to that question right what's gonna happen to it Yeah, nothing's gonna happen to it it's it, eventually it's gonna shrivel up right it's gonna stop growing the priority for that pumpkin to grow was to stay connected to the vine here's the simple application that anyone in spiritual kindergarten can understand If you want to be a Christian who grows and produces fruit and multiplies and expects to overcome the world, then you must maintain a strong, healthy connection to the true vine. That means abiding must be a priority in your life. Keeping connected to Christ means first, getting online spiritually. What do I mean by that? What well, demands three things of you, and I'm going to call it the www dot plan for keeping connected. See, I'm being real practical this morning. I'm making it real simple for you to understand. Philippians chapter two and verse thirteen says this: It says, "For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure." So here's getting online. Spiritually, the www.plan for bearing fruit, you've got a will to do it, you've got to work at it, and you've got to want it. Okay? You've got to want it more than anything else in your life. But here's the defining question. Do you? Do you? Or Are you settled to be content with just not bearing fruit or bearing very little fruit? Most of us usually get what we want, don't we, in this country? We determine to get it. We work hard at getting it because we want it badly enough. What do you want? What do you want in your Christian life? Frankly, folks, in this world of distractions that are luring us to other loyalties, I don't think we want to bear fruit for Christ as much as We should want it. Is abiding in Christ your greatest desire? It was to many people in the scripture. It was Asaph's greatest desire. In Psalm 73, verse 25, he wrote, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. Well, that's a pretty hefty statement, isn't it? In Psalm 42, Psalm 42, you know these verses, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, say it, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? It was David's great desire as well in Psalm 16. Listen to the words that he wrote there. Psalm 16, verse 2, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. Psalm 63, David wrote these words. Verse 1, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So it was Asaph's desire, it was David's desire. I think it was also Paul's desire. What do you think? Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, more than that, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ." And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's what Paul wanted. Is abiding in Christ your greatest desire? Listen, friends, I've said this before and I'll say it again. You and I, we're likely heading toward one of two places in our Christian life. We're either heading toward Philippians 1.21 or 2.21. It's easy to remember, isn't it? What does Philippians 1.21 say? Philippians 1.21 says, For to me... Living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. In other words, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's Philippians 1.21. Are you there? The other extreme is Philippians 2.21. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. That's the spectrum. Those are the two ends. We're all somewhere in between. But at any given point in our lives, we're heading toward one or the other. So let me ask you, which more accurately describes your lifestyle? Philippians 1.21 or Philippians 2.21? Jesus said, abide in me. That's the principle of priority. Now note, secondly, the priority of the principle little play on words there. In John chapter 15, again, verses 4 and 5, but this time the second half of both of those verses. Let me read them to you in conjunction with each other. Second half of verse 4 says, As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Second half of verse 5, For apart from me, you can do nothing. As Chuck Swindoll once said, that's the kind of nothingness every believer fears most. Or apart from me, you can do nothing. Without Christ, not one thing of spiritual fruit is possible. You believe that? That's what it says. Jesus said it. Nothing is possible. Zero zilch, nada. But notice the flip side, with him all things are possible. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Paul said in Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and apart from him we can do what? Nothing. Nothing. He didn't say apart from his teaching. He didn't say apart from his church. He said apart from me, continuing fruitfulness in the faith requires a constant connection to Jesus Christ. If you sincerely want to be as close to Christ as you can be, then it's going to require stripping out some of the things that sap your strength and letting in the things that make us strong, right? Stands to reason, doesn't it? what makes us strong his word makes us strong that's one thing if you determine to keep connected if you work at it by staying in the word and you want a close relationship with Christ more than anything else then you will never have to worry about producing fruit Can I say that again you will never have to worry about producing fruit I will guarantee it will happen If you stay connected to Christ and you're immersed in His Word, it will happen. Christ will do it through you, and that's the principle. The criteria for enjoying a productive life in Christ and seeing His fruit multiplied in your lives is twofold, and it's absolutely crucial. Spiritual fruit demands a right relationship to Christ. We must abide, as He's been saying. We cannot bear fruit apart from Him. Pure and simple. But as long as you attempt to manufacture fruit in your own strength, your life will be frustrating and fruitless. Because without the vine, the branch is useless, isn't it? God's people produce God's fruit only by God's power. Let me say that again. God's people produce God's fruit only by God's power. Speaking to Israel, God says in Hosea chapter 14, verse 8, It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. And then the other part of that is that spiritual fruit demands a right relationship to the word. It's basically kind of the same thing. Right relationship to Christ and a right relationship to the word. We must not only abide in Christ, but we must obey Christ. Right? Jesus said in John 14, if if you keep my commandments, you prove that you love me. Right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the Father and I will make our abode with you. He'll abide in us. The two are inextricably tied to one another. The secret of abiding is obedience. As one man put it, godly living shaped by godly obedience leads to a life that fulfills the purposes God has for it, fruit at the right time. The psalmist talked about that as well, very first psalm in the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Psalm 92 continues and extends that theme of lifelong continuing fruitfulness. In Psalm 92, verses 12 to 15, listen to these words. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. It's a great verses of scripture. Great verses of promise that even in our old age, we can still produce good fruit for him. Even when our bodies shut down and our minds forget things. I remember, I remember one of my instructors who was a close friend of Elizabeth Elliot. In Elizabeth Elliot's last days, and she, her mind was gone. She was basically unable to even recognize people. And she went to a, a gathering that was done in someone's home. And, and uh, this woman was there, and uh, they sang and they prayed. And they read scripture, and though Elizabeth Elliot was just sitting there and pretty much unable to do anything, every time they started to read scripture, she'd start to recite it. She had memorized so much scripture that it was deeply ingrained in her. And in her old age, she was still full of the sap of God's word and reciting scripture don't you want to be like that the only way you're going to get that way is to immerse yourself in god's word now it's not going to happen Some magically you know some magical things going to occur to you when you're 98 years old if it's not there now it won't be there then the relationship is undeniable in the scriptures the extent to which we bear fruit is directly proportional to the place the word of god has in our lives Because apart from our abiding in Christ, in our adherence to his word, there will be no spiritual fruit. But if you're not interested in abiding, if you don't practice the principle of priority or understand the priority of the principle, then you need to read a little bit further in John chapter 15 here and realize God's process of purging. That's in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. That's a scary verse. Jesus is not talking about believers losing their salvation here in this verse. Let me just state that categorically. The Bible says that that can never happen to true believers. Believers, John chapter 6, earlier in this gospel, Jesus makes that very clear. In John chapter 6 and verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And then in chapter 10 and verse 27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. Again, I believe that Jesus is talking about those here in this verse, as I said last week in in verse 2, about those who superficially attach themselves to Christ in word only, but are spiritually and fundamentally disconnected to Christ. They may be in a church or they may be involved with with other Christians, but they aren't truly connected to Christ through a personal saving faith. They've never given their lives over to him and they aren't abiding in him. Okay? Okay? Don't misunderstand Jesus' words in this text. Listen carefully now to what I'm about to say and unpack this one right. It is not the act of abiding in Christ that saves you. Salvation is not based on your ability or mine to hang in there. Jesus is saying that abiding in Christ is the evidence that you are one of His. The evidence of it. We all know people who have called themselves Christians, gotten involved in the church, and then, poof, they're gone. They want nothing to do with Christ anymore after that, or His church, unless they return in an attitude of repentance. According to the Bible, that person was never really a true believer. No matter what they have claimed, now, I recently unpacked all of this thoroughly in a series I just did on apostasy, if you remember. If you weren't here for that, you can get the CDs or get it online. But First John chapter 2, verse 19 and verse 24 says, They went out from us. Again, John's writing this. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that they would be revealed and it would be shown that they all are not of us. Verse 24 as for you let that abide in you John loves that word abide Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning if what you heard from the beginning abides in you you also will abide in the son and in the father That's 1 John chapter 2 Now it doesn't matter if you signed a card it doesn't matter if you said the words didn't doesn't matter if you took communion this morning Gone to confession last night, been baptized, or go to any specific church. If you are not bearing fruit for Christ, genuine, juicy, spiritually alive fruit, you are, according to this text in John 15, not connected to the true vine. Those are harsh words I know, but they're not my words, they're Jesus' words. Continuance is the test of genuineness. True believers remain connected to the end. If you're not abiding in Christ, you'd better do a reality check and get it right with him because the end result is no picnic, right? It's no picnic. Let me just show you that in Matthew chapter 13. Nobody wants to read these verses of Scripture, I'll guarantee it. Matthew chapter 13. Beginning in verse 24, verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares. He said to them, an enemy has done this. And the slave said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up but gather the wheat into my barn. Tares in that text, I don't know if you've done a study on that text at all, but tares probably refers to Darnell, which is, which is nearly impossible to distinguish from true wheat until it's in its ripened, mature state. But the thing about Darnell is that it's diametrically opposed to wheat in everything other than appearance being intoxicating and poisonous to the central nervous system. It can kill you if you consume it in large quantities. But it looks exactly like wheat in its infant stages. That's why Jesus said, don't tear it up right away. Because when you do that, you're going to end up pulling out wheat at the same time. Wait till things mature. And then he says, he's going to send the reapers to gather up the tares and bind them and do what with them? Cast them in the fire. Exactly what John was talking about in John 15, Jesus was talking about, right? They didn't abide. They didn't bear good fruit. Verses 40 to 42 in that same chapter. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I told you you wouldn't like those verses. But they are nonetheless true, and they are Jesus' words. My friends, Jesus said the alternative to what I just read is much more inviting. Much more inviting. If the priority of being closely connected to Christ is maintained, we not only enjoy the principle of bearing much fruit and avoid the punishment of being cast out, but we can also count on the privilege of answered prayer. Our privilege of prayer is in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Don't you love those verses of Scripture? Try to figure out what they mean. See, if the priority of being closely connected to Christ is maintained... We not only enjoy the principle of bearing much fruit, as I just said, and avoid the tragedy of being cast out, but we can count on the privilege of clear communication with the Father. Amen? Don't go running out of here thinking that if you're okay with Christ, i.e. abiding in Christ, that you'll just get a million dollars just by asking for it. Because there are a lot of prosperity teachers that teach that in that verse. Jesus doesn't issue us a blank check here, signed by God, and we simply fill in the blank. There are two conditions for cashing in on this, in this verse. Number one, you need to believe in and be following Christ, right? You must be abiding in him, it says. If you abide in me, and the second thing is knowing and obeying his word, and my word abides in you those two conditions ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you what's he saying trust and obey there's a hymn about that right trust in me obey what I say obey my word if you abide in me indicating that a person's a true believer and my words abide in you Indicating a personal knowledge and attitude of obedience to the word, then have at it. Ask for whatever you want and it will be given to you. Why? Because a person who is that closely connected with Jesus Christ, loving Him with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, who understands His Word and follows His Word, will only ask for God's will. You see? When you're that connected to Christ, your desires become His desires. And our prayers become aligned with Him and His will. That's what the psalmist was getting at when he wrote, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart in Psalm 37, verse 4. He will give you what you desire because what you desire is what He wants. Make sense? A person who delights himself with God has righteous desires and they are fulfilled. 1 John chapter 5, John again, verses 14 to 15. And this is the confidence we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. That's our confidence. But what's the criteria? That we ask anything according to his will, it says. The reason our prayers go unanswered is most often because they aren't rooted in our delight in God, but in our desire for self, right? We Heal me, fix me, give me, pay me, indulge me, make me happy, right? That's the way it goes. Too often that's the case, according to the Lord's brother James. In James chapter four, verses one to three, he says, what's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that are within you? You want what you don't have, and you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and you wage war and you take it away from them. You don't Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it, and even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure, James says. But when we're truly abiding in Christ, and his words are truly abiding in us, our requests sound more like this. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that right? What would that look like? What do you suppose that would look like if we were all in that place? John Ortberg writes in The, the Life You Always Wanted. And I want to take a moment to practically and personally apply some of the, some of the words that I read in that text from him. He says we need to design some concrete activities to achieve our goal. In that case, we must first understand clearly what doing them in Jesus' name involves. And second, to find out how to rearrange our lives accordingly. Okay. For instance, what would it mean for you and me to wake up in Jesus' name? What would that mean? What would that look like? because some of us by the nature of our genetic wiring wake up differently from other people don't we Right, husbands and wives parents and children we could divide the human race into two categories really the people who love to get up in the morning and the people who hate the people who love to get up in the morning (laughs) Someone asked John Ordberg's wife one time, Do you wake up grumpy in the morning? She said, No, I just let him sleep. <laughs> if Jesus held unhindered sway when our alarm clock went off, what kind of thoughts would pass through the mind, your mind? Maybe we should make it a point to take a few moments before we get ourselves out of bed to greet God. Do you do that in the morning? Tell him that the day belongs to him. This is your day. Invite him to go through it with us. This is your day and I want you to be there with me, God. Lead me in it. That is at least one way to wake up in Jesus' name, right? So let's apply that in some other areas. What would it mean to drive your car in Jesus' name? Well, now I'm meddling, right? (laughs) What does it mean to do household chores in Jesus' name? You need to read Brother Lawrence on that one. How do I work, play, or treat other people in Jesus' name? What would that look like? And what would change if we spent our money in Jesus' name? What would that look like? You know, you could just make a list, right? Friends, we're invited to do life in Jesus' name. We have the most incomprehensible privilege in the entire universe. Flourishing fruitfulness, then, requires the constant cultivation of God in your life. It demands a consistent connection to Christ in your heart, all for one ultimate and all-encompassing purpose, to glorify God in the world. And when we glorify God, we prove to be his disciples. So finally, flourishing fruitfulness results in the confirmation of our faith in Christ and the glorification of our Father in heaven. Verse 8. Verse 8 says this. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, And so prove to be my disciples. The point here, says Mark Green, is that fruitfulness is not an end in itself. Fruitfulness is intended to point to the wonder of the Father. So don't go out of here trying to bear fruit because you think I'm telling you you need to bear fruit. Again, I'll reiterate what I said last time. We're never commanded to produce fruit. We're commanded to abide in Christ and he will produce the fruit. And when we do that, we glorify God and prove to be his disciples, Jesus said. "There's an example of Paul in Galatians chapter 1. It's an odd text. You will probably, this is a text you've read before, but probably would never have come to your mind in talking about glorifying God. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Then, says, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith, which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. See that? Paul, had, his life had so changed because... Of Christ. And he was, Christ was so much in his life that people saw it and they glorified God because of it. Listen, the goal of fruitfulness is to bring glory to God. And the glory of fruitfulness is to be shown that we're his. Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven two things there let it shine so that people may see it and that they will glorify God and it will prove that you're one of his because he will be seen to be your father exactly what John is saying Jesus is saying in John 15 Ranius of lions once said the glory of God is a living man and the life of man consists in beholding God some people have translated that another way and you probably recognize this way the glory of God is a man fully alive the confirming proof that you and I are really alive in Christ is that we bear the fruit of eternal life and thereby attract people to God amen Is that what your life does or mine? That's the goal. Mark Green, in his book, Fruitfulness on the Frontline, gave this illustration that's been whirling around in my head for a couple of years now since I read it. I think it applies here. This is a living true story. After living for 25 years in the same place, Peter retired and moved to a town where he didn't know anyone. He didn't have an obvious front line, though there were lots of things that Peter could do including preaching and teaching and counseling, and he prayed and asked God, "What do you want me to do?" It's a brave prayer. And a humble prayer. You might not get the answer you like. For Peter, the Lord, brought Jeremiah 29, 7 to him. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. And Peter wondered, how can I bless the town that God has brought me to? So he prayed to the Lord again. And the Lord told him to pick up litter. Just go pick up litter. Now, you need to be having a good, solid connection with God to be able to pray that prayer and get that kind of an answer, right? And understand that it's from God. Pick up litter. So it reminded him of Jesus washing the disciples' feet in the upper room, cleaning off the dirt. So he went around, he went to the council, and he asked them for a litter-picking claw, you know, those things that pick up. And they gave him one on permanent loan. And so it came to pass that on the days when Peter went on his two-mile walk to, through, and from the nature reserve that was really close to his home, that he'd pray and praise God for his world and pick up the, the litter that marred it and put it in a plastic bag. And he'd smile at the people that passed by him on the path, and he'd say, hello. Pretty soon people started to say hello back. Little baby step. And then little conversations started to pop up. And the months passed, and the people would ask, Why do you do it? Because God loves the world He's made, he would say. Or they would inquire, Are you being paid? And He hasn't been, of course. And one person said, That's a thankless job. You'll get to heaven for that. <laughs> so Peter replied that he hoped to get to heaven not because he picked up litter but because he knows Jesus who gave his life for him. And during Easter week, he says hello to the people he normally says hello to, and he gives them a gift, a little cross. Made, he tells them, from olive wood from Israel, where Jesus lived. A gift to remind us that at Easter, Jesus died and rose again. And some people have indeed come to the evangelistic meetings at his church because of that. So as he walks, Peter picks up litter. Peter, the litter picker, picks up litter. And drivers he doesn't know toot their horns and wave in respect and gratitude to him. And then on one ordinary day, like any other ordinary day, a white van pulled up beside him and the window rolled down and the man in the white van, who had, of course, somewhere to go and work to do, said to him, thanks very much. Well, I wonder... Mark Green says, What strikes you about that story? In what ways has Peter been fruitful on his front line? In light of what constitutes fruit, as I outlined in last week's message, Peter has modeled godly character. That was fruit according to the scriptures displaying kindness and no doubt some self-control and patience as he picks up litter that is the result of other people's lack of self-control and patience and selflessness. He's made, he's done good works, which is another thing the scripture says is fruit. By cleaning up the park, he's taken the initiative to minister to strangers in grace and love which is also good fruit according to the scripture. He's been a mouthpiece for the truth, which is clearly good fruit according to the scriptures about God's concern for creation and for the right ways of stewarding that. He's even given little seeds of the gospel planted. And Peter has been a messenger for the gospel, telling others about why he does what he does, about his own relationship with Jesus and inviting people to find out more in a church context. And all Peter was doing was picking up litter. There are lots of ways to be fruitful for God, my friends. Doesn't have to be doing what I'm doing. What might God want you to focus on to begin with? Just to begin with. It might surprise you. It probably surprised Peter. Peter. He might have expected some other answer from God given the fact that he had actually spent 35 years working as an ordained minister of the Church of England. And then he retired to picking up trash. Very humble man. Bearing fruit for God in his old age. Listen, everything we do should be done with the intention of bringing glory to God. Amen? Everything we do... Again, author Mark Green writes, in Peter's case, God prompted him to seek the peace and prosperity of the place to which he had called him. Interestingly, the words peace and prosperity in Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 9, are a translation of one single Hebrew word. You know what that word is? Shalom. It's shalom. To pray for shalom is to pray for divine blessing on every aspect of our existence. Our physical well-being, our emotional well-being, our mental and spiritual well-being, our economic, political, and social well-being. Praying for shalom means praying for the things to be as God intended them to be. That's what the Hebrew term shalom really means. Whole, complete, beautiful, fulfilled. Still, within that huge overall goal, God called Peter to begin with a particular act in a particular part of his world, pick up the litter in the park, when Peter began, he could not have known what that might lead to. How could he have known? It was God's will. But humble obedience to our Lord is fruit that pleases our Lord, and he sees it as an act of love for him in John 14, 21. And if in the end, the only result was that litter was picked up, would that have been good? Would that have been good? Yes, it would. Peter might have yearned for more, but it would have been good. Why? Because it was God-pleasing. It was God-pleasing. So what do you do? You know, you may be a builder, or you may be a mechanic, or you may be picking up trash. And all the while... God is using you to build into somebody's life the glorious fruit of righteousness. In his excellent book, The Source of My Strength, Charles Stanley wrote these words, and I'll close. The Lord doesn't catapult us into greatness, He grows us into spiritual maturity. He stretches us slowly so that we don't break. He expands our vision slowly so that we can take in all of the details of what he desires to accomplish. He causes us to grow slowly so that we stay balanced. The unfolding of God's plan for our lives is a process. Expect to be engaged in that process for the rest of your life. Beware of coming to the point where you say, that's enough. I'm comfortable with this. I'm satisfied with what he's done. I've arrived. God has never committed to leaving us on a plateau. Read John 15 again this week and note how the word fruit is used and where. No fruit, fruit. More fruit, much fruit. And figure out where you are on that spectrum.